Three. Two. Two. One. One. Dr. CB. Yo, Dunny, we back in Le Chateau. In Le Chateau. Very comfy place to be. Yeah. You know, I'm curious, uh, how's, how's uh, your gene expression going and, and what kind of influences are you leaving for your girls? Oh, man. So I'm guessing that you're uh, referencing the epigenetics pod that came out a couple of weeks ago, huh? Yes. Sir. Yeah. Y- yes, sir. <laughs> yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Sound like my wife when she calls me yes, sir. <laughs> uh, ma'am? Just accustomed she calls to you it. ma'am? Oh, yeah. No doubt. <laughs> Among many other words. Some of five letters that start with B. <laughs> yeah, so uh, that epigenetics episode... I don't know, man. I've been trying to, uh, that was a fun episode for me. I really enjoyed recording it. It kind of brought back some things that I feel like I had previously learned a little bit, but not gotten too deep into. Yeah. So it, it's been on the forefront of my mind a little bit. Yeah. Well, you've been coaching up them green geckos. Oh so. man, the green geckos. Yeah. We're in that Flagstaff soccer club. Yeah. Yeah. My girls are playing soccer. It's been a lot of fun. So I volunteered to be a head coach, um, just trying to follow in those footsteps of my hero, Ted Lasso. <laughs> yeah, I still think for the season finale or for the end game, you got to uh, shave in that mustache. Bring the mustache Get back. that sweater with like a button up shirt rolled up. Yeah, the dockers and the visor. Yeah. Yeah, and like the aviator sunglasses. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> oh, man, I would love to. That seemed uh, like it'd be a tough one. I fun. think the game before the last game, you yeah. should do lead tasso. Yeah. And then the last game, you should do Ted Lasso. Come back with the nice, nice. Yeah. Yeah. That'd be a good <laughs> way to redeem the, nice, the nice. redeem the season. So you affect their genes with the lead tasso and yeah. then you bring it all back with the Ted Lasso. Yeah. And just repair it with Teddy Boy. There you go. Yeah. It's been fun, man. We, yeah. uh, you know, naming the team was a big deal. I really wanted to go with like the Green New Deals or our, our, our color is green, right? Yeah. Kelly Green was the name of just it. Sparked a lot of ideas on your A lot end. of ideas, which all got shot down. <laughs> yeah. by, the, by the gaggle of six-year-olds. Yeah, a lot of them were over their head. Like, I want to be the Kelly Green, Kelly Canyon Rhodes. Yeah, I, well, that's over that. my head. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a place off of I-17 called Kelly Canyon, right? And off of 89 towards Sedona. So I thought it'd be fun. Kelly Green, Kelly Canyon. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that got shot down. Green yeah. New Deals. Apparently, they didn't understand that one either. So you're throwing these all out and you just... Just got crickets. Oh, worse. <laughs> Just like that, man. That that bring, brings back my experience, my memory. And so, you know, and then things like green gorillas and green uh, green geckos came up. So. And for you, for you, for you, so they weren't having your ideas. Yeah. And it sounds like you you weren't real pumped on their ideas well, either. I had to, yeah. It's like everyone's going to be the green geckos or the green gorillas. <laughs> Everyone. Everyone's going to come up with alliteration yeah. and be a green gorilla or yeah. a green gecko. Exactly. So I just jump into that Enneagram four wing way over there. Like, just I don't want us to be like anyone else. Kelly green, Kelly. <laughs> yeah, the Kelly green, Kelly tanks. Or what about the Kelly green, Kelly McGillises, man, just in honor of Top Gun? No one got any of this stuff. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, is Kelly McGillis in Top Gun? Yeah, man, that's a call sign Charlie. That's a, you know, she's the woman that her and the Tom Cruise, they kind of get together, right? <laughs> Dude, so what I, a way to say that. Man, you know, for me, <laughs> for me, one of my favorite experiences in life is coming up with all these ideas that are just like way out in right field yeah. and then watching my wife respond to them. <laughs> it's, just, it's just so fun for me to watch. Is this crickets? Or is it, is it this? It's, you have, it's kind of both, but like the more that they, the more that they grow, it, it, like, are any of those anger? <laughs> I don't see the anger, the anger button, button on here. Maybe this one. Here, here you go. So this is what you yeah. get. 
on my end. <laughs> like, here's an idea. And, and then, then you just get that. Yeah. You don't have, like, Roy Kent just growling in there, do you? <laughs> Oi. Yeah. Oi. Yeah. Yeah, that's kind of where the re- response I get from my wife. Anyhow, so who are we going beyond flat earth today? <laughs> <laughs> Smooth transition, man. Today we're going beyond flag with Dr. Brian Peterson, an associate professor in geography, planning, and recreation in the College of Social and Behavioral Sciences at... Oh, the Harvard of the West. NAU, go Jumberlax. <laughs> Brian was born and raised in a small town in northern Idaho. He earned his bachelor's in environmental science from the University of Idaho, followed by master's degrees in both forest resources and public administration from the University of Washington. All of this ultimately resulted in him earning his PhD in environmental studies from University of California, Santa Cruz. Yeah. What's the mascot there? Dude, them banana slugs. How did you know that? I have no idea. I just did. Yeah. yeah. I just knew that their mascot was banana slugs. You knew that was a piece of information that needed to be stored away. Yeah. I was like, I'm going to use this one day. I, did I know it'd be this moment? No. Yeah. Well, and you, it, you've you used it more than that one day because uh, when you brought up that the, their mascot was the banana slugs, it reminded me of an anecdote and an experience I've oh. had with you. Yeah. <laughs> you know where I'm going with this? Uh, yeah, this is not good. <laughs> so... Uh, yeah, you and I are over working at the tree park, working outdoors, just mm. getting some of that biophilia. And that biophilia. Yeah. So uh, crunching away on some laptops. Yep. And this, <laughs> this kid, this kid at the park, a kid that's uh, unknown to you, right? Yeah. I just want to confirm what you age? didn't know him. Yeah, I did not know uh, this guy. Like four? Yeah, three or four probably. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> three or four. Yeah. And the kid's doing laps around the park. And then he, he begins to, he recognizes who's, who's the beta yeah. in the park. Oh, I could get something from this guy. <laughs> so so he, keeps, he keeps hitting you up and you keep just feeding it every time he's making laps around the park. What did he want? Do you remember? Well, I, I anticipated, I, I know this is unbelievable, yeah. but I actually thought the thing that he wanted was your iPad because you were working on your iPad. Oh, okay. So I thought... You know, his parents are brought into the park. He's looking for a way to get back to the electronics. Uh-huh. How do I hit He wanted yeah. Netflix or whatever. Yeah. And I don't think I realized that in the first time, but he kept hitting you up. And you were the only person I saw in the park that had an electronic. So, uh, yeah. yeah. Okay. So he keeps, he keeps, I just wonder if I was eating an Oreo or something. He keeps hitting you up. And remember, <laughs> I can't remember this is before or after this happened. Uh, <laughs> he was asking. He was asking if he could watch PBS Kids on your iPad. Yeah, there we go. Anyways, that's not the relevant incident. Yeah. The relevant incident was that uh, you made a joke about a banana slug that day. Yeah. Yeah. And he says, what's a banana slug? <laughs> and then what do you say? So Just this random you. bearded guy at the park says, oh, I can show you a picture you of, you. of a yeah. banana slug. On the iPad. Yeah. Fortunately, I was there that day and I said, I don't know if it's the best idea to be pulling up images of banana slugs to this kid for yeah. him to go back to his parents and say, hey, that man over there is showing me pictures of banana slugs. Yeah. Yeah. Fair. I was just trying to, he didn't know what a banana slug was, man. I'm trying to be the nice guy. I was going to pull out the phone and show him a picture of a banana slug. Uh, okay. I could have just shown him the UC, uh, UCSC mascot. Yeah, you could have. And fortunately, I think I derailed that. Crisis averted. Yeah. Oh, man. Thank you, Dunny. Anyhow. So, Brian. 
Oh, yeah, right. So his research focuses broadly on the social dimensions of climate change. He recently co-authored a book with Diana Stewart and Ryan Gunderson called Climate Change Solutions, Overcoming the Capital Climate Contradiction. His work also focuses on wilderness, public lands, biodiversity, conservation, sustainability, and city planning, as he's produced dozens of journal publications related to these topics. Recently, he served as the chair of the City of Flagstaff Sustainability Commission for three years and speaks to his experience on this episode. All right. So let's jump in with one of our most competent guests following one of our least competent (laughs) introductions. Yeah, that's for sure. Sorry about this, everyone. I think you'll really enjoy this interview. Yeah, those segues and uh, transitions, smooth as silk. Yeah, not quite as abrupt as this whole thing. So let's go beyond flag with Brian Peterson. Welcome to Beyond Flag, a Beyond the Pines production, created by, with, and for the people of Flagstaff, building connection in the town we love. We are your hosts, Dr. Daniel J. Phillips, and Cody Bayless, also known as Dr. Chinchilla Nice Nice. Thanks for tuning in as we go Beyond Flag, straight from the dunny of our observatory. All right, here we are in the chateau. Le chateau. Yeah. And today we're here with Brian Peterson. Brian Peterson, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Delighted to be here. Yeah. Uh, We're delighted to have you. Yeah, really looking forward to this one. Yeah. Yeah. And so uh, if we could jump in, if you could just give us an overview of what your day-to-day life looks like and your current responsibilities and roles. Yeah. So I'm a professor at Northern Arizona University. I'm in the Geography Planning and Recreation Department. And, uh, you know, geography is really the, the, the first environmental studies sort of discipline And so I teach a bunch of classes on environment and society, a class called Nature and Society. I teach a class on political ecology, which is a sub-discipline in geography that's really looking at why we have environmental problems and how historically we've used the wrong sort of analyses to suggest why we have them and how to get out of them. I teach a class on planning, on city planning for sustainable communities. And I teach a class on, um, uh, you know, basically it's called climate change in society. So Mm -hmm. where climate change came from and what we, what we should do about it. And in my view, we're doing all the wrong things for the most part. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I have, I, I really love teaching. So my day to day is mostly preparing for classes, teaching classes. I just really love students and working with them and mm-hmm. hearing from them. It's just really enlightening. I learn a lot, mm-hmm. you know, that's super exciting. And then, you know, we're also doing research. I have graduate students who are uh, working on different projects and I'm, you know, in the middle of all kinds of different things in terms of writing and trying to publish things that are relevant, that are interesting to me personally, that have some benefit for our teaching, mm-hmm. but ultimately, hopefully lead to some clarity on what we're doing as a society. Mm-hmm. Oh, great. Well, thank you for that work. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, there's an energy that comes from students, right? The campus is buzzing right now. Can yeah. you feel it? Oh my gosh. Yeah. The whole, the COVID situation has been really serious mm-hmm. and it's been really serious for undergraduates. It mm-hmm. puts them in very difficult situations. Mm-hmm. A lot of them had to go back to home, uh, you know, situations that were very difficult mm-hmm. and just, mm-hmm. it was demoralizing. And so mm-hmm. there were a lot of mental health issues last year with students and, you know, we got through it and I think we did pretty well. Most of the faculty I've talked to and we got good feedback from students, but mm-hmm. it's great to have them back on campus. And for me, this is the most exciting part of the year, right before the semester begins, the energy and then getting into the classroom and interacting with the students is just such a gift. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so that, that, uh, that's one of the things that really you find fulfilling. So you look forward to the opportunities to teach. Do you have a favorite class out of the, those classes that you said? Yeah. I mean, it's really hard to say. I love teaching. (laughs) I love graduate students. I'm going to, okay. Putting me on the spot. 
one. I think I would say, <laughs> I'm going to say the nature and society class I teach, which is like a 200 level. It's basically yeah. an introduction to environmental studies. Uh-huh. And it's such a different view than most students are used to. Uh-huh. It's a different perspective. You know, most people think that we have environmental issues because we have too many people, which that's just empirically false. Mm. And so when you get into that <laughs> and you start teaching students and their, their minds just are blown and they're super interested and they yeah. look at the world differently and just that early, you know, first couple of years in college are so exciting. And to have yeah. that experience with students is really wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. Do you ever, do you ever, when a student says something that's based in an implication that's false, you just look them, look at them and say, that's empirically false. <laughs> well, I do actually. <laughs> I mean, with empathy, with empathy, yeah, you yeah. know, I mean, again, it's not, it's not that they're bad people and, you know, I get this from all kinds of people outside when I'm giving public lectures as well. It's just that we have, we've been indoctrinated into certain mm-hmm. ways of thinking. Mm-hmm. And so it's not, I mean, so I just, I mean, you know, I never have any antagonism with my students. We have all kinds of different perspectives and we just, mm-hmm. you know, if they say something that's not true, well, it's just, it's just not true. It's not mm-hmm. that they're a bad person. And that mm-hmm. is a nice launching point for getting into, you know, well, what is true and, and truth, of course, we have to be careful in our present day because it's been, you know, everybody has the truth. There is no truth. Everybody, whatever anybody mm-hmm. says is the truth, but now that's not true either. So the students have been really great. And, and, and honestly, the students I get, they're totally open-minded. Mm-hmm. And again, I learn from them too. So it's dialogue. It's not mm-hmm. just me telling them mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's this uh, sort of path we take together and mm-hmm. it's really, really great. Yeah. In my experiences, I, I think that's what the energy is, is that there's this synergy or synergistic uh, dialogue that produces that energy and the, kind of a give and take um, most often from the faculty to the student, but a give and take to just open, open exchange of ideas mostly. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I'm teaching things. So there are, you know, we have a textbook, for example. So there are things that we have to learn, but at the same time, it's all context. You know, mm-hmm. there's, it's not like an algebra problem. Mm-hmm. There's ambiguities, there's nuances. And so it's sort of, those are the elements in the mm-hmm. areas that are really exciting and that mm-hmm. the students get into. Yeah. Yeah. So how did you end up? How did you end up in a field that's ambiguous, that's based in ideas? How did you end up in in that field? Well, it's it's one of those things that's like it's hard to imagine I'm even in this field. You know, it's like when I I mean, I had a really hard time in school. I was not a good student. I was graduated from high school and hadn't even really considered college. I mm-hmm. never in a million years thought I'd be a professor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, I grew up in Northern Idaho, very conservative. You know, we didn't talk about environmental issues, but I was very drawn to environmental issues from a very early age in really interesting ways. Mm-hmm. And so when I got to university, I ended up going to university. I was immediately drawn to the environmental science program. Mm-hmm. And again, I, you know, I had this sort of conservative um, bent, which... I, let me just be clear. There's nothing wrong with conservatism. It's not like conservatism is bad. It's not that mm-hmm. conservatives don't care about the environment, but where I was from, there was no environmental concern. Let's mm-hmm. put it that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so and then I was like, well, I'll get a degree in, in, in you know, environmental science and then get into a you know, nonprofit organization and do advocacy. I did a bunch of um, you know, internships and realized very early on that, I, it, that the environmental community didn't really resonate with me. And mm-hmm. I was seeing all these things that they were saying and doing that presumably and purportedly were about doing good, but that didn't resonate. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Anyway, long story short, then I ended up in a PhD program again. can't imagine how that <laughs> happened, but I was an environmental studies program. And even during that program, my thinking continued to change. I remember very distinctly when I was in a PhD program, 
we were having conversations as students and faculty about what to do. And we were just saying, you know, if we just had solar panels and electric cars, everything would be fine. Mm-hmm. Basically, we're having that same exact conversation now. And mm-hmm. at that point, I was like, yeah, you know, if we just had electric cars and solar panels, everything would be fine. Mm-hmm. But then you start looking into social theory, you start looking at what other people have been saying for decades or centuries, mm-hmm. and you realize that's just not going to work. And so it really resonated. It really was exciting that what we were doing, in in my view, was not working. And then to figure out why was super exciting. Mm -hmm. And so that's just continued since graduate school and it just keeps evolving. And Mm -hmm. the more I get into it, the more it's just so, again, empirically obvious that what we're doing just cannot work. It fundamentally cannot work. And Mm so most people who consider themselves to be environmentalists, you know, they're well-meaning, but oftentimes our environmental movements are putting forth solutions that actually are not solutions mm-hmm. and that are actually leading to an extension of the problems. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If we dig into the why a little bit, like you're saying, solar panels and electric cars is kind of this idea that that'll be the thing that saves the planet. And I, I guess I'm wondering why is that not true? Well, it's not true um, because of empirical evidence. The evidence is, and I have a colleague, um, uh, well, I'll just say there's a professor at the University of Oregon, Richard York, whose um, career has just been the definitive point on this. Mm-hmm. And so he's just looked all across the globe at people who people and countries who have put forth alternative energy. And what it shows time and time again is that the more alternative energy you produce, you're just adding to the total energy. It's not mm-hmm. displacing fossil fuels. Mm-hmm. So the the thinking is. If I do something in my house to reduce energy from fossil fuels, Mm -hmm. solar panels, electric cars, Mm -hmm. that that means that there's going to be less fossil fuels. There's no connection. There's Mm -hmm. absolutely no connection. And so there has to be a mechanism. That's what I teach in my class. There has to be a mechanism. If you're going to do something that has an outcome, there has to be some mechanism. So Mm -hmm. presumably if you were going to use, you know, alternative energy, that would mean Mm -hmm. that by putting more electrons of energy from renewable energies, that would just immediately lead to less fossil fuels. Mm-hmm. That just doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. And again, it's just based on evidence. And mm-hmm. this has been going on for decades. He had a paper 10 years ago that showed this, and he has another one a couple years ago. They're just definitive. Mm-hmm. And so it's so then we have to think about, well, if it's not working, why would we still be doing it? And mm-hmm. that's really the issue. And it's just obvious because we're in a society and a paradigm where we're just consumers and the mm-hmm. basis of our society is economic growth. And so... Actually, when you look at the details, we're putting up a lot of alternative energy, mostly to make money, and that's Mm -hmm. happening globally. Mm -hmm. So it's not that the emphasis is not actually addressing climate change; it's actually making money. And again, that's an overstatement, but you get my point. It's not. I'm not saying that everybody who does it on their individual Mm -hmm. homes is doing that. And let me also say, I'm not saying people who do that are bad, Mm -hmm. and I'm also saying that there aren't reasons why some people might want to do that for a variety Mm -hmm. of reasons. So Mm -hmm. it's it's not inherently good or bad. It's just it's just a fact. It's just not those those sort of um, approaches just cannot work. And we have to be honest about that. Yeah, yeah. and the fact is that it's not efficacious for uh, change if, if you're addressing the issue of climate change. And so, yeah, it's not stating something as good or bad, right. framing it that way. So then electric cars or solar panels, they become one example of something that's representative of a system. Yes. And, and so here we are, we're off. Uh, <laughs> here we go. <laughs> yeah, so... Um, you know, you, you have a book that you just published. Was that in 2020 that you published that? Yes. Okay. It was several years in the making, but I think it was a 2020 copy. Okay. Yeah. And it's with uh, your your partner, Diana Stewart. That's right. And then with uh, Ryan Gunderson. And it's called Climate Change Solutions Beyond the Capital Climate Contradiction. That's right. And so you set this book up 
um, right there, we're kind of talking about the content of an issue and you set it up to go deeper to look at the system that produced where we're having a dialogue about whether to produce more electric guitar or cars and whether that's the solution. Um, and you describe it as an ideological critique. So can you define what is an ideological critique? What were you doing in writing this book? Yeah. So, I mean, we, you know, what's interesting is that just as an anecdote, when I was coming to Northern Arizona University, you know, I had faculty who I was leaving. They were saying, you're going to Arizona. It's so dry. Oh, don't worry about it. You know, climate change is 20, you know, 80 years away. It's not till 2100. Mm -hmm. I'm like, what? These are people who teach climate change, for example. Mm -hmm. And again, it's not a criticism, but it's like, how could it be possible that somebody who teaches climate change could make an, a statement like that when we're already experiencing climate change and mm -hmm. people are dying? You mm -hmm. know, and so 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 then we really got interested in how is everybody thinking about climate change, mm -hmm. and why is it that in society we have this sort of movement in very specific ways to address climate change? That's almost all technology. That's almost all on the shoulders of individuals to buy things. Mm -hmm. Almost nothing about people coming together collectively. No questions whatsoever about how our society is organized or how we might reorganize it so people can flourish. And at the, at the same time, we could reduce emissions. Almost none of that conversation. Mm -hmm. And so it became really interesting for us to think about that. And there's been a lot of work over the years on ideology. And ideology you can define in many ways. Many people think ideology academics is a really nebulous term that doesn't, it isn't a good descriptor. <laughs> so I don't want to get into that necessarily, but mm -hmm. I'll just say for, for our purposes, what we were really interested in is the way people think, how, mm -hmm. you know, what, what are their priorities? What are their worldviews? What shapes those? That's mm -hmm. really ideology. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so what we're saying is that there's a critique of this. We need to critique the ideology that's leading to these notions of how we should respond to climate change, which again, in our view and based on the evidence, just can't work. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. we're, we're putting forth a critique of the ideology that has led to this. And, and what we're saying is it's not individuals who sort of choose an ideology. That's not what we're saying at all. It's that because of the way we've organized our society, people just think certain ways. Mm -hmm. And so when there's a, there's a problem, what's the solution? You just buy something, you know? Mm -hmm. It's a bunch of affluent white people buying things they don't need. You know, mm -hmm. that's the solution to climate change. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, mm -hmm. that just can't work. It just, and again, it's not that they're bad people. <laughs> you know, if they want a nice car, you know, whatever, you know, mm -hmm. I'm not judging, you know, people can drive whatever they want. But if we want to address climate change, mm -hmm. we have to have a different kind of society. Mm -hmm. It's as simple mm -hmm. as that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It was, uh, there were three things that you spoke to. It was green technology, bioengineering, and then, or, yeah, bioengineering, then there was, one it was of the geoengineering, geoengineering, geoengineering yeah. and green growth. Are the green, three. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and so the thing I'm hearing you talk about a little bit there is like the and going back a little bit too is it's like we've kind of identified that the solution for this is found in technology. And the thing I hear you saying is no, it's not. There sounds like there's some basic assumptions there. One of those is if we use more green, um, clean energy, then it's like we'll use less fossil fuel. But that's not true. It's not true. No. And I just gave a talk a couple nights, I guess, two nights ago the city and some other partners put it on about the new IPCC report, the Intergovernmental Panel oh, on Climate yeah. Change. Yeah. They put out their sixth assessment. It's a big deal. It's for the first time they said unequivocally that climate change is because of humans, which mm -hmm. we all knew anyway, but you know, they have a different process. <laughs> yeah. um, and we have, you know, we have people in this community at, at NAU who are at the forefront of that. It's really amazing. Mm -hmm. But so I, I was giving a talk and um, you know, it's, it's in this broader context of like, what are we doing and why are we doing it? Mm -hmm. And yeah. the question is, why are we doing it? We already have the evidence and the question is, if the evidence is clear that we have to drastically reduce emissions, why is it that we keep putting forth solutions that don't do that? And, and one of the reasons, again, is we have this sort of fetishism of technology. Mm -hmm. 
you know, everybody likes new technology. It's, it's purportedly going to save the planet. Mm -hmm. And all we do is just keeping up, keep producing new technology, which has all kinds of negative consequences. I Mm -hmm. mean, there's positives as well. There's no question about that. We have a lot of affluence and technology is a part of that. But at the same time, that can't be a solution if that's what caused the problem in the first place. And that gets mm-hmm. back to the ideology. We, we don't, you know, as a society, we just don't see that that's the process that's led to the problem in the first mm-hmm. place. Mm-hmm. And that if we really want to do something about it, we have to get off that track. Mm-hmm. And the problem is people make a lot of money and people like technology. And, you know, we also have you know, the other thing just quickly is we have a status-based society. So if you mm-hmm. drive a fancy new car people look at you in a different way than if you were driving, you know, a dilapidated car. Mm-hmm. And so that doesn't even speak to why are we driving cars? Who can drive them? Who can't drive them? Who mm-hmm. can't afford them? Mm-hmm. So there's all these equity and justice issues that mm-hmm. are embedded that we never talk about. It's just, we just need more technology and everything's mm-hmm. going to be fine. Mm-hmm. Right. That's really the problem. Yeah. And so when you go down this path, I imagine in my mind and the stuff that, um, you know, I've been reading recently, um, I imagine these types of conversations are really threatening to people. Um, well, I don't imagine that. I experience it as very threatening to people. <laughs> to self. Yeah. yeah. And, and so, um, you know, I, it, it leaves this big question. Um, how do you approach a conversation like this without, say, without someone feeling condescended to or questioning the system how do you have a conversation that questions the system in a way that doesn't feel threatening but to say hey let's have a dialogue and actually i'm willing to listen to you as well but let's actually question how we ended up here yeah do you have ideas for how to go about that or what's your experience with it yeah i mean i'm still working i mean a lot of my colleagues are really mad at me all the time because (laughs) you know they the way they teach is um it's just it's different it's technology will save us it's let's let's all get teslas everything's gonna be Mm -hmm. fine Mm -hmm. And again, super nice people. It's not like I'm, you know, criticizing, but that just, it just, it can't work. Mm-hmm. So that's part of it. Um, part of it is that I have been yelled at for a fair amount by people. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I give a lot of public talks and every so often somebody will send a very mean email or call me and yell at me, which is mm-hmm. totally fine. Mm-hmm. You know, what just is one example. Um, somebody, uh, I was giving a talk and I was saying these same things basically. And, mm-hmm. and somebody was very offended because they have solar panels and they have a, you know, a, a hybrid or something. Mm-hmm. And the comment they made was because I have these things, I care. And people who drive big pickup trucks don't care and are mm-hmm. the problem. Mm-hmm. And I just said, well, that's just not true. I mean, mm-hmm. a lot of my family in Idaho, they're, they're poor, mm-hmm. you know, they have pickup trucks, but their carbon emissions are minuscule to this mm-hmm. person, mm-hmm. even though they have solar panels and, uh, you know, a hybrid car. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and second of all, you can't say anything about who a person is based on something as superficial as what they drive. Mm-hmm. There's just, that just, you just can't do that. And mm-hmm. so, but, but the vast majority of people I have to say, are not in that camp. Mm-hmm. The vast majority of people are super interested and engaged. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you the thing that's the most exciting is that young people really get this mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. they've been told all you can do is take shorter showers and use a canvas bag when yeah. you go to the grocery store. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that it's their fault that, that, that climate change yeah, is happening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and so when, when you tell them that actually your individual actions are important for a variety of reasons, but not mm-hmm. actually for solving a problem, mm-hmm. and that what we really need is to come together and envision something totally different mm-hmm. and bind together and demand something and actually live together communally in a way that's self-supporting and, and mutually reinforcing, oh my, they, they get so excited. Mm-hmm. So my experience has been, you know, the way we've talked about climate change is in the broader context of our society, which is purportedly... Mm-hmm 
you know, very polarized, which I totally disagree with. But, but when you actually get down to it and you're in your, in your sort of talking to people, mm-hmm it's not antagonistic. And mm-hmm. when you say it's the system, it takes them a while. And honestly, it's really funny because I'll, you know, I'll give a whole talk on this and then they'll be like, the question will be like, what are the three things I should do? Yeah. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. well, well, you should start a social movement yeah, yeah. with a bunch mm-hmm. of your friends mm-hmm. and, you know, work on it five nights a week. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't matter what you buy at the, you know, what, what bag you get from the grocery store, mm-hmm. you know, plastic bags are causing all kinds of problems, but what matters more is what goes into your grocery bag. And more importantly, why do you only have the selections you do and why can't yeah. we be more self-sufficient? Mm-hmm. And why is it that so, so many Americans are, you know, don't have food to eat. Those yeah. are the questions we should be talking about, not what you should do as an individual. So it's, it's really fascinating. It always goes back to what should I do as an individual? Yeah. yeah. And so most of the conversation is just repeating time and time again, that that's really not what we should be focusing on. We need yeah. to come together as communities and, and have a different kind of society. Yeah. And yeah. it's exciting, but it's, but it's, um, so anyway, my point, my, my, this is a long answer, but the point is, that gets back to the ideology because the ideology is we're just a bunch of individuals. Yeah. There is no connection. And, and that's really the issue we have to get past, but mm-hmm. that is so deeply embedded in our psyche. Mm-hmm. And again, that's why it's ideological. It's mm-hmm. not just about people making bad decisions or good decisions. It's really mm-hmm. about views of what life mm-hmm. is and how we should organize ourselves. Yeah. yeah. I, was, I was thinking when I was hearing you talk there, like that, that quote from your book that we mentioned a second ago before we started recording was that idea that like it's easier to imagine the end of the world than it is capitalism. And it seems like a function of the system in itself to sort of put it back on individuals to think that like, well, it's up to me to sort of change everything. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's really, I mean, the, to me, this is the most exciting part because mm-hmm. again, the starting point is we couldn't possibly have anything different. We have what we have. The politics are the way they are. Yeah. The economic system is the way it is. All we can do is do these marginal changes, which is buy solar panels and electric cars. That's why we do it, because we can't imagine anything different. And when you start telling people, actually, there's no reason why we couldn't do something different. There's nothing about our society that makes it so we can't change. Mm. It doesn't have to be permanent. And that's where you can get into these really exciting conversations. And that's what I try to tell people, too, is like when you look beyond the U.S., because the U.S., we're so myopic, we don't see anything else Mm -hmm. for a variety of reasons. Mm -hmm. But other people in other places are binding together in ways that are really exciting, demanding mm-hmm. something different, car-free cities, mm-hmm. you know, just different ways of thinking about it. And importantly, a lot of them are doing it in a way that's about climate change, but it's really about mutual support. Mm-hmm. It's really recognizing that our society is so fractured. There's a, you know, the situation where just loneliness is an epidemic. Mm-hmm. And so it's not about, again, thinking about carbon, you know, specifically, it's really about what are we doing? Mm-hmm. Why are we so lonely? Mm-hmm. You know, and that's also an outcome of a society that's also very carbon intensive. There's, mm-hmm. they're, they're linked. And so when people start seeing that actually responding to climate change becomes really exciting because you mm-hmm. start c- connecting with people in ways that you hadn't before. Mm-hmm. And then all kinds of things can change. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There was one individual I was listening to recently. His name is uh, Andrew McAfee. He's a researcher and economist from MIT And he was talking um, about some of the way you were speaking about it. He saw that we were in serious trouble climate-wise, that um, that was anthropogenic. It was uh, related to us as people existing on the planet was a a predominant component to that. And that we needed to get uh, global warming to two degrees and under. And and he was emphatic in saying it needed to be under, but people somehow land on two degrees as acceptable. Um, so he's on board with all of that, 
But then he was saying, the way we're going to solve this is through capitalism and production. And then uh, he one, one uh, talk that I was listening to of his, he said, there's two pieces of data that worry me in the world. One is the direction that the climate is headed, and the second are deaths of despair occurring mostly in Western societies he was referring to. He was talking more broadly than the U.S., but mostly Western European-type societies. And he described deaths as deaths of despair as those that were coming from like depression, suicide, um, shorter life spans, um, you know, uh, lower life satisfaction. And um, as he was talking about that, I thought to myself, well, how do we not, how does this mass production not connect it to the deaths of despair? These two numbers you're worried about. And you see as complete separate. You're just saying here, these are two things that concern me in the world. Yeah, is there a correlation between those two? What's your opinion? I don't think there's any question about it. And, you know, it's one of those things where you can't get any specific data points to link them necessarily mm-hmm. because they're, it's, it's complex. There's all kinds of things in society that are playing out that mm-hmm. have outcomes that you can't say one's related to the other. I think they are directly related. So a couple things. I mean, first of all, the argument that we can just use economic growth to better ourselves is not true. If you look at any of the indicators, we're going in the wrong direction as economic growth has been going way up in past mm-hmm. decades. Mm-hmm. There's just no correlation. Economic growth leads to way more wealth, but that has led to extreme inequality. And inequality, mm-hmm. we know, is actually getting to what you're saying. There's a really great book, I'm forgetting the name of it, um, I'll think of it, um, that came out, The Spirit Level, that came out like 10 years ago, which showed conclusively when you have inequality in society, you have all these negative outcomes mm. for everybody, not just the poor, but also wealthy people. Because everybody, it's again, it's this sort of status-driven society where everybody wants to get ahead. That leads to stress, health, negative health outcomes. That is one thing. Uh, other thing is, relatedly, in order to have the society we have, we have to have a lot of production because we have a consumer-based society. So 70% of our economy, roughly, is based on consumer spending. So we have to have people buying a bunch of stuff all the time, mostly stuff they don't need, in order for the society to function. Well, what does that mean? That means they have to work a lot. That means they have to go on deep debt. That means they have to look at their computers to purchase things. That means they have to have less interactions. We know that people are working more. We know that you know most job most people hate their jobs. That's that's again based on evidence. There was a long there was a big yeah. study that came out that showed globally that something like seventy percent of workers hate their jobs. Mm-hmm. So then you think, why would we craft a society in which we basically only are here to buy things, mm-hmm. in which we spend most of our time with strangers in activities we don't like? Mm-hmm leaving almost no time for connection, fun, conviviality. Of course, you're going to have a situation where people aren't feeling good. So the basis of the global economy is for people to do things that don't actually make them better off. Mm -hmm. And you create all this wealth, which creates inequality, which further exacerbates these tendencies for people not to be doing well. Mm -hmm. We know that if you're lonely, it's basically like smoking 15 cigarettes a day. That's the, that's the basic health outcome. So Mm -hmm. it's terrible. Now, getting back to your other point, the argument that we just need more production. Well, where does production come from? You have to take earth and turn it into commodities Mm -hmm. to sell, which you then ship around the globe on giant ships or airplanes. The whole thing is absurd. I mean, it's just when you step back, like how could we possibly be in this situation? Mm -hmm. It's just not working Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. people aren't doing well. Mm -hmm. And we're hurtling towards the abyss. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, to me, 
the argument that they're somehow separate is absurd. Mm -hmm. And the argument that we can somehow just keep the same society we're in and basically do the exact same things and then somehow magically something else is going to materialize, it doesn't make any sense. So the argument is just, it's coming from people who are affluent, who are high status in high society, mm-hmm. and who have, you know, basically their names to protect after, mm-hmm. you know, decades mm-hmm. of work. They couldn't possibly say, actually, I was totally wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, people aren't going to do that, unfortunately, mm-hmm. because, of, again, of our status-based society. So, I mean, it's not, it's just not surprising at all that would come out. My point is that we have to really interrogate how it is that somebody is so intelligent, could say things that are obviously so wrong. Mm-hmm. Well, so he uses as the foundation of of his idea, he uses um, the argument that uh, GDP has continued to go up in the U.S. Um, year after year, right? Which is uh, the goal of capitalism, right? So growth is um, evidence of success and perpetually that needs to happen to produce more success. And uh, And so he says the GDP has always gone up. And yet uh, our use of resources and materials, which kind of makes me cringe because I've, I've tried to make an effort to become more connected to the globe and the planet as something different than a resource or a commodity, the way we're talking about it here, but that's the way it's addressed. So he says um, we're consuming less of those resources in the U.S. And he's factually correct in that, except that he, it's um, blind to the fact that um, our GDP is tied to us outsourcing and taking resources from other countries and con- continents. And, um, and so our consumption of resources hasn't gone down. It just has gone outside of the U.S. Yeah, I mean, it's just so obvious. I mean, again, I can't even imagine somebody could get away with that um, because, again, the evidence is so clear. Mm-hmm. Material consumption has increased is twice as much as it was 100 years ago. And since 1970, it has quadrupled mm-hmm. at twice the rate of population. So it's not just more people. We're using mm-hmm. way more than just more people using stuff. Okay. Mm-hmm. It's, just, it's just based on evidence. The other damning evidence is that last year there was a report that showed that we, for the first time globally, used over 100 billion tons of materials. So the material use of society continues to go up. The argument that the U.S. is going down, it's just, it's so absurd. Mm-hmm. First of all, um, and I recommend reading Jason Hickel's work. He publishes um, a lot in The Guardian and elsewhere. And what he has shown conclusively is that basically we are mining the developing world. So we don't mine here anymore on the scale we used to because we've gone to other countries. So does that mean we're using less? Of course not. And then all those materials that go to China that are then produced and then shipped across the oceans to us. So it's like, you know, the whole thing that you, you would even use an argument like that just means you're totally out of touch because the material consumption of our society is so high and the negative consequences are so extreme that to turn a blind eye to that just says that you don't have any empathy for the way our society is organized. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't matter if you, you know, contrive some data points to sort of make the case that the U.S. is using less. I mean, just mm-hmm. look around us. I mean, my gosh, it's just absurd. Mm-hmm. So that's, I mean, that's why, I'm, that's why again, it's, it's ideological. That mm-hmm. guy's super smart, you know. But, you, you know, in order to make that claim, mm-hmm. you have to base that on all these assumptions. And that's mm-hmm. really what my work is super interested in is why do we have all these assumptions and why can't people see them? And mm-hmm. it's obvious. I mean, again, it's not, you know, I'm not criticizing. But when you talk to anybody almost around environmental issues or social issues, mm-hmm. 
when they say things, what you really have to be attuned to is what they're not saying and what, what their statements are based on. And so this guy, you know, GDP is good. Technology is going to save mm-hmm. us. So that's mm-hmm. the starting point. And mm-hmm. then from that, you contrive this sort of research agenda mm-hmm. that supports that. Mm-hmm. And again, I'm, 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 I'm being a little bit, um, you know, obtuse here. <laughs> Let's just be honest. <laughs> I'm sure he's very smart. His work specifically. Yeah, but, but you get my point. Yeah, I mean, no, you know, yeah. it's like in order to make those claims, you have to have an ideological foundation yeah. that rests on those. And so that's the point. And so it, this is what makes me really sad is that mm-hmm. we just, we even, despite what we're seeing, I mean, we had reports 50 years ago about, you know, the limits to growth, you know, it just said you can't mm-hmm. have this much material consumption without mm-hmm. negative consequences. Mm-hmm. And instead of engaging that, we just have people who contrive new ways to argue we can get around it by doing mm-hmm. the same thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was wondering if, uh, if you could speak to GDP a little bit, it seems like one of the greatest, uh, me- maybe the only gr- measurement of capitalism and how it is performing is GDP. And it seems like that measurement is really not helpful. No, it's not helpful. And what's super fascinating is that the person who came up with it immediately said, this is not a good metric for judging <laughs> yeah. how society is doing. That was in the 1930s after the Great Depression. It was during the Great Depression, basically, and after it in the 1940s. How do we understand coming out of World War II? How do we know if we're doing well? Mm-hmm. And so if you just calculate how much we produce and you know spend and buy and so forth, that gives you some sort of estimate as to whether the economy is coming back. But again, the person who came up with that said unequivocally, this is not a good metric about whether people are doing well or whether countries are doing well or mm-hmm. whether we're meeting our needs. Mm-hmm. It has nothing to do with that. Now, GDP, of course, has become the barometer of politics. Yeah. And so, you know, it's not surprising whether it's George W. Bush or Barack Obama or Donald Trump or Joe Biden. It's all about increasing GDP. I mean, mm-hmm. again, it's the ideology. And the, the GDP, again, is super beneficial if you're wealthy, you know, for wealthy people, for corporations. It's, it's fantastic because it just means is if that's going up, there's just more money mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. speaks to the priorities of our society and mm-hmm. our goals. Mm-hmm. And so we've prioritized economic expansion under the assumption that when you have an increasing economy, everybody does better. It's kind of like solar panels. If we have solar panels, we're not going to have, you know, we're not going to have yeah. fossil fuels. If we have GDP going up, everyone's going to be fine, but there's no mechanism there. Again, there's no yeah. connection or correlation. And so rather than having a statement that we should have higher GDP, we should flip that around and say, we should have a society where people and systems flourish. And how can we, how can we get there? Mm-hmm. And then if GDP can get us there, fine. But of course it can't, we already know it can't. Mm-hmm. And so that's the issue again, it's this ideology that we just can't break away from. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately it's just sort of the basis of our society, of our entire political system of both parties. Mm-hmm. Yeah, again, with it being held in such high esteem, it has no way of telling the difference between, I think it was Jason Hickel actually says, like, there's no way to tell the difference between like $100 worth of kale, uh, you know, $100 worth of a person being in prison or $100 worth of health care. Like, it's all kind of the same. It doesn't measure wellness, I guess. It just emphasizes that money. Exactly. Yeah, so and the other thing to keep in mind is, you know, Hurricane Katrina was devastating, but GDP goes up because you have to, you know, have to mm-hmm. rebuild. And so actually counterintuitively, environmental destruction is extremely good for GDP. Mm-hmm. That should yeah. tell you something, you know, if people are super unhealthy, it's great for GDP because you have yeah. to have, you know, heart surgeries and so forth. And so actually what we really want is a decrease in GDP. And so that's what our work is really the basis of. And what we're saying is that it's not okay just to say we need more GDP because of all these negative outcomes. And instead, we should really be having, having a decrease, degrowth. We should have decrease in economics. 
and not just overnight so that, because that would lead to total chaos and many people would lose their homes or their pensions, whatever. We have to have a different kind of society over time in which we get away from GDP and focus first and foremost on people's well-being. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, starting there seems like such a such an important thing that GDP misses. And the thing I heard you saying earlier is it seems like the wealthy wealthy elites really have the most to lose with the way things are organized now. And so I would imagine anything that's kind of targets or goes against GDP or in capitalism, that it would act as a threat, basically. Mm-hmm. It's a huge threat. And it's not just the elites either. Well, it is. It's super wealthy. But it's also, you know, if, if I was just in a normal conversation with somebody in Arizona and said we need to have less economic growth, I mean, like immediately they would be yeah, concerned. That's threatening. Immediately yeah. threatening. Totally mm-hmm. threatening. Mm-hmm. And, you know, politically, they would be saying they would use some sort of negative term mm-hmm. to, to, you know, slander me, yeah. which, you know, communism, whatever, those terms have no meaning. They're, they're totally political. They don't, mm-hmm. they don't have meaning. Nobody actually defines them. We're not talking about that. The USSR was a complete disaster. It was an authoritarian dictatorship that killed 60 million people. No one's saying we should do that. It's absurd. But as soon as you say we should get away from economic growth, oh, oh, you're a communist, you know. (laughs) But that term just has no meaning again. And instead, you know, what we should be talking about is why do we have the system that we have in place? Is it working for everybody? And if not, what should we do about it? Now, of course, there are enough people who are doing well. And the other thing that's really fascinating is that our society has been structured in a way where we, again, we have these sort of social norms. We have these expectations. We have to get a new car every three years. We have to get a new job. We have to move to the best neighborhoods. Fine. But there are consequences. Not everybody can do that, of course. And so we don't really think that much about who's being left behind. And we certainly don't think about what's happening in terms of the environment and whether the earth is going to be able to support civilization as we know it, which mm-hmm. if we continue the path we are, there's no way it can. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's absolutely no way. So so for me, rather than slandering me, I mean, I feel like people should be slandering people who are like, well, no, we should just, like that economist, we should just be doing the same thing, you know? Yeah, full steam ahead. Full steam ahead. Um, yeah, I'm curious, how do you experience this in, um, in your real life experiences? I know that you worked with the city council. What was your role? You were the, either the chair or... Yeah, I was the chair of the sustainability commission for three years. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, when you talk about this, I can picture ways, even how I started this dialogue, that some of this can come across as threatening. I don't know if that was an influence at all, but... How did, how was that experience for you and how responsive did you experience like the council to be or community members to be in response to what you were saying? Yeah. I mean, well, first of all, as you can see, I'm quite blunt and I, I do that intentionally. I mean, I don't, I don't feel like there's any reason to sort of, yeah, hold back. I mean, if something is clear, we should be clear about it mm-hmm. and it's super clear to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so some people, you know, I don't try to be mean or call people out, but you know, that style doesn't work for everybody. Mm-hmm. And you know, the, the argument is that you just have to just sort of, um, compromise. Mm-hmm. Well, we've been compromising the future away for decades and I just don't feel like it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's worth it. I don't, mm-hmm. I mean, and it's not to criticize anybody, but it just, it doesn't, doesn't work. Mm-hmm. So I was on the sustainability commission. That was super interesting because the sustainability commission was set up in the like 2007 or so. And it was really just set up to give advice to council. That's all it is. So what's fascinating is, you know, you just, you put your name in and then city council votes basically periodically if there's a, vac- a vacancy and I, I got on. And what I learned immediately was that the sustainability um, section of the city is Mm -hmm. sort of supportive of it. But the Mm -hmm. sustainability commission itself has no resources, no power. We don't make any decisions that have any consequence at all. Mm -hmm. It's not threatening in any way. You know, we're just we're just charged with giving information to council. That's it. So 
it, it became really clear to me that the city was not doing enough to address the issues. So, mm-hmm. you know, there are lots of issues around climate change and transportation and housing that are all, in my view, interlinked, that if we want to do something about it, it there needs to be a sense of urgency. Mm-hmm. 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 And so as the Sustainability Commission, you know, we um, we take part in some of the deliberations around some of these issues. And in and, and 2018, there was a, a transportation tax coming up on the ballot. And it obviously has huge implications for climate change because transportation is the biggest contributor to carbon emissions in our town. And so it just makes sense that if there's going to be public deliberation, that the Sustainability Commission would weigh in. Well, we were not invited to have a, you know, a role in that process. And we went in front of council and made that claim. And we also said that the way this is structured and the priorities and the, and the sort of the, 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 projects that are coming out of it are going to lead to increasing carbon emissions. Now, this was happening simultaneously when I was also involved with the climate action planning process and the city was putting together a climate action plan that Mm -hmm. ultimately in November of 2018, the city council unanimously approved. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so to me, it was just really clear that we had these opposing processes going on because we're going to put forth this 20 year, $300 million transportation planning project that's going to lead to increasing emissions at the same time the city council is saying that reducing carbon emissions is one of its top priorities. Well, that's just a contradiction. And so <laughs> I, I went in front of city council and made that claim, you know, it's like, this is, this is not going to work. The other thing I said during that process is that we can't just talk about transportation. We need to talk about housing because if we want to have transportation that works for people, that's not carbon intensive, that's not single occupancy vehicles, we need more density. There's just, there's just no question about it. And you cannot have... A public transportation system, for example, unless you have something like 7,000 people per square kilometer. You know, there are these metrics that you have to have. It's a little bit nebulous. It's not quite that exact, but you get my point. Yeah. Well, are we doing that? You know, we could clearly say that. So, no, of course not. And so, anyway, um, what ended up happening was the city council did not take our recommendations. Uh, and then I was voted off the um, Sustainability Commission in an unprecedented fashion in which <laughs> Again, when somebody is when when there's a vacancy on these commissions, which again are completely voluntary, we don't get paid, we have no power whatsoever. There's no <laughs> resource, no money, literally no. Okay, um, so it's not threatening. So when my name came up, um, what ended up happening was uh, the city council deliberated on it on the dais for a few minutes, and then they went into private session outside the public purview for 35 minutes to discuss whether they were going to reappoint somebody to a volunteer position that has no power. Okay, so you get my point, obviously. So something's going on here, you know. And ultimately, they voted me out. So Mm -hmm. it was a four to three vote, and they voted me off, which is completely unprecedented. I've talked to lots of people. I've never heard of anybody not being reappointed unless they were like a felon or something. So so why is that? And again, it goes back to this ideology, you know. It's like... Yeah, they want to be able to say they're super excited about climate change and, uh, you know, a vibrant transportation system. But then when it comes to actually making the decisions, it's a little bit different. And mm-hmm. and so I think it's very telling about our society and, and what this says about, yeah, where we're at and what's possible. Mm-hmm. What do you think? So, so I get what you're introducing in terms of obviously that's ideologically threatening because we all grew up in this culture or anyone that's um, a U.S. citizen has grown up with this ideology as a premise, regardless of what house they lived in. Um, was there anything beyond just the, the ideological threat to them responding that way? Is there a fear of how the public will respond or? 
No, I don't think so. I mean, I think this was quite personal, actually. Mm-hmm. I think they just got mad at me mm-hmm. and that I was a threat personally to them. I mean, mm-hmm. one of the things that came out in the discussions, which was so fascinating, is that one of the arguments when I was saying we should, because basically what I was arguing is that instead of putting the tax measures on the ballot, we should take them back, redo them and put them on two years later. Mm-hmm. And the there was a, a commission, a transportation commission, tax mm-hmm. commission that was uh, formed that met for like six months or something. I'm forgetting the details. And so one, you know, on, uh, a council member basically said, you know, we shouldn't go take this off the ballot because this group of, you know, citizens mm-hmm. who are volunteering, you know, put their time in. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, I'm a volunteer. I'm putting my time in. You know, it's like, it's like, again, it's like, can you not see the contradictions? It's just so mm-hmm. absurd mm-hmm. to argue that we shouldn't, you know, rethink something that's going to be 20 years of transportation projects and cost $300 million Mm -hmm, because we had 15 people who volunteered and went to six meetings. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just like, you gotta be kidding me, Mm -hmm. you know, and I've been on the commission for three years. I mean, just, it's just, so, so that, that tells me that it's not rational. It's Mm -hmm. really, you know, you know, people just, you know, some people find me to be um, difficult, you Mm -hmm. know, I'm I'm very blunt and I, you know, I think I'm quite, um, you know, even keeled about it. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't attack anybody and I never attacked anybody in this process. I just mm-hmm. said, we should really rethink this and what you're doing is going to lead to increased emissions. And by the way, it's also going to be a system that doesn't work for everybody. Mm-hmm. We're not doing anything for poor people. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're in the lowest bracket of the income bracket, you know, most of those people spend upwards of 50% of their income on cars because it's so expensive. They couldn't possibly take the bus system. It doesn't work. Mm-hmm. There's no, it's not efficient enough. There's no way people could take the bus on a day-to-day basis in Flagstaff. You know, and that's not the, you know, that's not because of the, the, you know, the planning people and the, you know, the transportation system don't care. It's just that the outcome is clear. Mm-hmm. It doesn't work. Mm-hmm. And it's, bec- it's becoming more and more carbon intensive. Mm-hmm. Well, if we have one of our top priorities of lowering emissions, then transportation is the first place to start. Mm-hmm. And the thing is that whole run up to the ballot measures didn't really include any discussions around climate change or carbon emissions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. even though it was happening simultaneously with the city adopting the climate action plan. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, well, I was thinking just real quick, I was, you were describing your style as being blunt and it seems like there was something that was personal. I was thinking, man, I imagine that's the same thing that, a, you know, a student is going to be drawn to who's in your class. Like I would imagine the way that you speak this stuff, um, it comes across as really powerful and I can see how, again, that would threaten the system. And some we talk about systems and psychology is they organize to not change. Like once they get going, they do everything they possibly can to not change. And so it seems like this type of situation created that. Um, I was wondering, you mentioned you wanted to pull back for two years and then um, put the tax measure back out there. Was there anything specific that you wanted to include on that? Or was it, we need two years more time? No, no. So it was, so what, you know, the, the measures in the plan are about, building new roads, building bridges, you know, those. And so the argument is that those roads are going to have a bike lane, but that doesn't mean (laughs) the bike lanes are integrated, that they connect, that people are going to be able to use them. And so it's really heavily focused on, again, infrastructure around cars, basically. And so what we were saying is when you, and the evidence is clear, when you put more roads, because part of the argument is we don't have enough road miles in Flagstaff because it's a strange east to west mm-hmm. and there's the, the train tracks. It's really complicated. You know, I'm not saying it's easy, but what we know from evidence elsewhere is that if you just build more roads, it increases, it actually increases driving. Mm-hmm. So it's called induced demand. Mm-hmm. So when you build more, it just ends up filling up more and people mm-hmm. drive more. Mm-hmm. So that's really interesting. 
And so what, you know, and I'll, I'm just going to say me personally, because the sustainability commission had different members, different ideas. So this is just my own views at this point. So okay. I don't want to, I don't want to bring them in and drag, drag them down. <laughs> but, um, but for me, it would be, you take examples from other places where they do the opposite, where they actually take out road miles, they narrow roads, mm-hmm. they put in bike only, um, sort of routes, you put in bus rapid transit instead of having these giant buses with nobody on them you have much smaller buses with smaller routes that are more connected and radial mm. so there's just other ways of doing it but that costs money it's a complete paradigm shift you have all yeah. this you know you have all this sort of sunk cost into the transportation infrastructure we have already yeah. people don't want to do anything different but they want different outcomes that's that's the catch and so in order to do that you have to do something different there's just no way out of it and so for me it was just very clear because yeah. Independent of climate change, our transportation system here doesn't work for most people. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, we can, it's a small town, so you can get around. But again, right. if you're poor, for example, it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're if you have to have a car, it's expensive. And so, why not work, you know, towards an outcome that gets away from that? And to me, it's a perfect example of how we could do this in an integrated way, and actually have, you know, an, an, a new approach to housing as well. So people are living differently. So it's more dense. It's more vibrant. You get away from mandating parking spots, you know, it's going to be difficult, but you have to deal with these things. And so mm-hmm. we just have this mentality that, well, we couldn't possibly plan where we ha- we get rid of parking spots. You just can't do that. You know, if there's a new building, there's a parking requirement, yeah. you know? And so we, my view is we need to get away from that. Mm-hmm. And that's where the excitement is. Cause then people are like, wow, this is cool. We could do a lot of cool things. Mm-hmm. We could have dense housing, you know, it's like the, the public works yard that came up initially as a, uh, a vote for her affordable housing. And so the very progressive pro affordable housing city council voted it down. And now it's going to be another park. There's like 200 acres of parks. I live in that neighborhood. It's amazing. The last thing we need is another park. We need affordable housing. Mm-hmm. And so that should, that's an example. That should be a place where people can actually afford to live who live here, where they can walk downtown and walk to the bus lines and so forth. And you use that as a hub. Then you start changing the way you do the bus systems where it's more, you know, it's just more efficient in terms of how people can use it in their day-to-day lives. Mm. And then all of a sudden you have these sort of cumulative benefits where not only are carbon emissions going down, which is in my view, totally secondary, but what's really happening is that people have better lives mm-hmm. and that's where we should be focusing our attention. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The measurement that the GDP is missing, huh? Yeah, exactly. Completely. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Listening to you, you you break down in your book um, climate change solutions. You break down um, like social structural changes needed and systemic changes that are needed. And I'm trying to categorize. I don't know if this is helpful or not. What some of what you're proposing here, just your ideas, what they would represent. Do you see what you're talking about now as systemic change or social structural? I guess it's both. Listening to you. Yeah, and those terms I think are. A little bit confusing in some ways, but what we really wanted to do was just differentiate what we're saying from what's being touted as climate change solutions. Mm-hmm. So if you're just, you know, having people buy electric cars, that doesn't in any way change society. Now, mm-hmm. again, there might be good reasons for it. And if somebody wants an electric car, I'm not, I'm not criticizing. Mm-hmm. People can do what they want. And there, you know, there probably are good reasons for some people to have electric cars. But the point is, it's not in any way functionally changing the society that created the problems in the first place. And if you don't mm-hmm. change that, nothing's going to change. Now, on electric cars, for example, you know, the, the, the latest report I saw suggested that the projections are we're going to build a billion new electric cars by 2050. 
So, okay, let's just step back for a second. Did you say a billion? A billion. With yeah. a B. Yeah. So if we're going to build a billion new cars, what does that mean? We don't know how to process batteries either. <laughs> yeah. So. I mean, so it's just like the mining alone that that's going to yeah. require. Yeah. And that's not going to be done with solar energy. I can guarantee you that. Yeah. And if you look at what's going on in the Congo a minute, which is being, being called a hellscape, which is almost entirely to get minerals for electric car batteries. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just like the, the, the social and ecological consequences are immense. Yeah. Don't they require silver and other like fine minerals and minerals, metals? Yeah. Yeah. All, yeah. And a lot of them are from places like the Congo and Bolivia. They don't. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. so the point is, it's like, again, is that, is that really a solution? Is that really a positive moving forward so mm-hmm. that affluent white people can drive a car when they already have one that works just fine? Mm-hmm. And so, so my point is that's not necessarily any kind of real change. And so mm-hmm. what we're talking yeah. about is a systemic change a cultural change, mm-hmm. moving away from GDP, for example, questioning, you know, this sort of rush for just more of everything all the time in mm-hmm. order to support profits. If that's our goal, we're doing great. But again, we're, we're getting to the point where it's going to be hard for the earth to sustain civilization mm-hmm. if we continue that. Mm-hmm. And so we really need to think about systemic changes about how we're mm-hmm. organizing ourselves, our priorities, and moving away from all the metrics we have now. Mm-hmm. And instead of just having more, Actually, we need less of everything. Rather mm-hmm. than more a billion new electric cars, yeah. we need to cut down a billion cars that we already have mm-hmm. and do so in a way that allows people to get around and have a, a functioning livelihood. Mm-hmm. You know, that's where we need to get to. Mm-hmm. And so that's what we're that's what unfortunately most of the conversation around what to do around climate change is focused on, buying things. And yeah. we want to just get completely away from that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, again, GDP. Uh, I think I shared that quote with Dan. We were joking about this environmentalist who had said, I've never seen an environmental solution that includes building more cars. Mm-hmm. That's going <laughs> to well, be like that. Well, you see the, you see the proposals. You I see mean, the proposal. One that's, that's going to be effective, saying. right? Yeah. 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 It, you know, you where you're at right here, it takes me to the pre- precipice of thinking about Cody and I's field in terms of mental health. Um, because you could really go down a pathway right here that um, these alternative solutions that aren't based on our current system and perpetuating what we already do, these truly alternative suggestions that come from you and others, um, they also incorporate this dynamic of how can people then be more connected to what they're doing. Um, and it's really helpful. There's a, there's this really... Um, powerful silver lining to one message you're communicating here is we as consumers often get the message that the reason we're in the situation we're in is because we're not turning the shower off soon enough or we're using the plastic bag at the grocery store we haven't bought the electric car yet and that's actually not the issue and we shoulder the blame and so there's this real freedom in letting go of that and then stepping back and reevaluating and some of these alternative proposals would lead to more connection to what you're doing day to day less connection just to just specifically what you produce or contribute to production yeah absolutely i mean i i i've gotten into <laughs> a fair amount of trouble on this as well but um about recycling so this is really this is related um you know Everybody thinks we should recycle and, you know, we're totally indoctrinated, but recycling Mm -hmm. doesn't fundamentally work. Mm -hmm. If you look at the reports, the amount of materials produced is going up and the proportion of recyclables is going down. Mm -hmm. And the interesting thing is that when you look at the history, recycling actually came out of trade industries around producers who wanted to shift the burden away from their production Mm -hmm. onto consumers. And so recycling was actually put forward in a way 
to get industry off the hook. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that was in the early, late 60s, early 70s. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so, so when you tell people we shouldn't recycle, like, they freak out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally freak out. My point is... Or even that cycling's in, recycling is ineffective. If it's you just totally make that ineffective. statement. Yeah. If you just it's, make that statement, it, right? You get, you get yelled at. Yeah. So the point is, well, my point is, you know, we should be having way less stuff. Not, not as sort of deprivation. Yeah. You know, like the average person, including myself, has, you know, houses full of stuff they never use, you know? Yeah. And so that, what, what's the point of that? And so rather than thinking about recycling, once something comes to your door, the damage is done. It doesn't matter if you put the box in the recycling. Mm-hmm. It makes no difference, you know, mm-hmm. honestly. And so why do we have things coming to our door, you know? Well, because we're all isolated and we know that when people are isolated in a, you know, a, a society we have based on status, you buy things and people are working a lot. There's a high correlation between work hours and, and, and purchasing items. And so we need, what we're arguing for is a systemic change. We need to actually work way less. Well, what does that have to do with climate change? Well, it's actually central to climate change. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You can't actually reduce emissions if people are working so much because that work is around production, energy use, and consumption. And so my point is, you know, what we really need to think about is actually, how can we get away from that? And by the way, that's, you know, that outcome of that, that sort of society is loneliness, depression, anxiety, not for everybody, but mm-hmm. the numbers are mm-hmm. unbelievable. Skyrocketing. It's unbelievable. And they continue. Yeah. 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 And so why is it? So why not actually do something totally different where people aren't working as much? They're doing things that they enjoy. They're contributing to their communities. They're connecting with their community members. And at the same time, carbon emissions go way down. Mm-hmm. It's very straightforward. Now, obviously doing that is difficult, but the, yeah. but it's just so clear. And the problem is, again, the ideology of our society is that we need to be individuals in our own homes mm-hmm. buying a bunch of stuff we don't need. And that's, mm-hmm. that's what we do. Mm-hmm. And that, unfortunately, when you step back, is really sad because mm-hmm. it leads to so much pain and suffering mm-hmm. and ecological degradation mm-hmm. that could be easily overcome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the great majority suffers through the process. And it seems like there's a different way and one that's much more connected and has an, has an emphasis or a take on wellness that could be just so much more fulfilling and it could result in human and planetary flourishing, basically. Absolutely. But I, I think because seeing it that way takes questioning what currently is, yeah. um, I, think, I think it's so hard for people to get there, right? Yeah. Yeah. So then you get back to, well, what three things can I do, Brian? Yeah. <laughs> and you can turn your shower off sooner and not use plastic bags, buy that Tesla. Yeah. yeah. Um, and in reality, it's like you said, it's really actually about um, putting information like this out, creating groups, um, connecting mm-hmm. to actually uh, communicate the ideas. So ideological change will actually happen as the ideas are perpetuated and propelled. Yeah. And that's really a hard sell. Again, when I give these presentations, you know, in the public and I, you know, I talk for 30 or 40 minutes and then it's all about, you know, moving away from individual actions. Mm-hmm. And then someone says, you know, what, what can, can I do? I do? <laughs> <laughs> it happens all the time. It's really hard for me to respond because I, I have to, you know, and, and the response is, you know, in some ways somewhat convoluted because again, it's not three things, but really what it is and what I continue to tell people is that what we really need are social movements. We need mm-hmm. people binding together And what we also need is a move away from this paradigm of I'm going to be an environmentalist by sending $25 to an organization, which, you know, if you want to send money, great, you know, fine. But we need to move completely away from that because what that does is it takes the agency away from individuals and communities and gives it to somebody else. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
again, there's this, there's no mechanism here. If I give money, I don't know what's going to happen. Mm. As opposed to if I got 150 people I know, you know, connections, and we went to city council, we could change almost anything. Because if mm-hmm. you have 150 people at a city council meeting, they're going to listen, I guarantee it. Mm-hmm. So that was really interesting. The, mm. the talk I gave the other night, the... Um, so, uh, you know, last year, when, earlier this year, when there was the, um, or I guess it was, well, I forget when it was, but anyway, the, um, the um, climate emergency declaration, there was a front page uh, story on the Daily Sun that had a picture of the city council chamber, and it was totally packed. Now, what's interesting is that that declaration didn't have any policy prescriptions, didn't lead to any particular actions, didn't actually lead to a change in resource use. Mm-hmm. But when I was standing in front of the city council about a 20-year, $300 million proposition, it was me and like three other people. There was nobody in the room. Mm-hmm. And so that also speaks to the situation we face, or we face, which is most people are not engaged. They don't know what's going on. They vote, you know, they, mm-hmm. they participate in that way, but they don't really know what's going on. And for me, rather than waiting until a transportation measure is put on the ballot, we should have people getting working together on a daily or weekly basis around what kind of transportation system will we have that doesn't end with any ballot measure. It's a continual process of understanding what's going on in our society and how we might change it. Similarly, that would be with housing, climate change, all these mental health issues. So we, we could, we could get people, if we could get people together and to commit to participate and to connect then we could change all kinds of things. But at the moment, nobody's doing that. So my, so when someone says, what three things can I do? <laughs> Again, I tell them, you need to get to in connection with your peers, your friends, your neighbors, your community members. You need to commit to actually getting together, to deliberating, to hear perspectives, to educating yourself on what is transportation, what is public planning, what is climate change, and working tirelessly from now until the end, whenever it is, decades mm-hmm. from now, because if we don't, nothing's going to happen. So we have to get away from this paradigm of, I need to do something in my own home, in my own life, or I need to go to this one rally or vote for this one thing. We have mm-hmm. to get away from that whole paradigm and just recognize that we need people coming together and committing. And there is no end. It doesn't end because the problems are not going to go away yeah. overnight and there's going to be a need for continual reassessment. And so people need to get together and connect and work and contribute. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I really appreciate the like, just the ability to step back and see the big picture with all this, right? And um, for me, I remember just kind of touched on some of the bullet points from the IPCC report. Maybe I heard this somewhere else, but it was like the idea that if we went zero carbon emissions, the whole planet tomorrow, it would still be 30 years of diminishing world before it starts changing was the way I understood it. And I'm thinking I'll be 68 years old at that point pretty much on the tail end of my life, but there's generations ahead of us that this is so important to. And the, for me, I remember starting your book and you wrote to our daughters for whom we hope another way is possible. And that like really hit me. I was thinking like this goes so much further beyond my life or my generation even. And the thing I hear you speaking to there is it's like, this is about creating justice for generations to come. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. In fact, we were going to, we actually, the title of the book was Another Way is Possible and the publisher made us change it. But that was really the paradigm. It's like, we don't have to live in this system. It doesn't have to be this way. There's no reason it has to be that way. And there's so many benefits of doing things differently. And, you know, we had our daughters in mind. I mean, I, I'm terrified of my daughter's future. Honestly, it's, it's totally terrifying. It really is. But 
We also know that even if we did have no emissions, there would still be climate change for probably centuries, if not millennia on some okay. scale. But yeah. the scale is so different. That's the yeah. thing. And there are, you know, more and more sort of um, sort of analyses that suggest that if we went drastically, if we drastically reduced our emissions, that most of the terrible consequences of climate change would not materialize. Okay. So it's serious. It's yeah. serious. And again, I'm, kind of, I'm speaking in an ambiguous way because nobody really knows what's going to happen. But our point is, why would we have such a carbon intensive society anyway that has so many negative social and ecological consequences yeah. when we could craft a society that's not carbon intensive, that more importantly leads to human and ecological flourishing? Yeah. Just is so obvious. Yeah. Choose one. <laughs> I love that title. You say there is another, another way, way is possible. Another way is another possible. Way, another way is possible. Yeah. That's that's great. Yeah. Yeah. Boo to the publisher. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> well, th thank you so much for spending the time with us. Um, yeah, I'd encourage people to get your book, uh, Climate Change Solutions Beyond the Capital Climate Contradiction. So such good work. And in there, you know, there's a couple of really powerful messages for everyone. One is that the situation we're in is not the individual's fault, which is part of the system, right? That's part of the message of the system. And so it's really freeing. And then it provides strategies and another way, other ways, another way is possible. So um, we, I, we like to ask people, Brian, um, how they connect here to Flagstaff community, the community here. So yeah, how would you summarize how you connect to this region, this area here? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, I mean, Flagstaff is beautiful, obviously, and it's such a unique place. It's high elevation. Mm -hmm. It's really lovely. I think that in general, people really like living here and that, you know, that's important. <laughs> and it leads to people's perspectives being generally positive. Mm -hmm. It's also, you know, because of the elevation, there's so many active fit people that's really inspiring and people are just out and about, which I love because I'm really mm -hmm. active too. It's just fantastic. So in those respects, I think it's really nice. Mm -hmm. um, I think independent of Flagstaff itself, no matter where I was living, I would have a hard time connecting mm -hmm. in part because of modern society. You know, mm -hmm. most people, it's just really hard to connect, it, you know, and especially sort of middle age, you know, you have kids, you have a career, you know, it's not the dynamic, you know, twenties where you're, you know, meeting people and it's in flux and you mm -hmm. might be moving somewhere else next week, who knows, because you know, everything's in flux. And so it's nothing specific to Flagstaff per se, but I do think there is a real situation in society mm -hmm. in which people just feel detached. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's really hard to feel connection you know, when I tell people that they should connect and get together and work on these things, it's like I've been trying for decades. It's really hard to do because mm -hmm. people are isolated, you know, mm -hmm. and I think in general, many people feel precarious, mm -hmm. independent sometimes of their economic status, it's just because who like, you know, whether they're going to lose their job or, or there's going to be another economic downturn or just, it just feels precarious. And I think, you know, that's one of the reasons why our politics are so polarized is that people just feel precarious. It doesn't mm -hmm. feel stable for a variety mm -hmm. of reasons. And mm -hmm. that leads to, you know, just perspectives and, and actions. And I'll, I'll leave it at that, but you get my point. Mm -hmm. And so, so that's part of it. I think that, you know, because there is this, you know, just epidemic of loneliness, which honestly I feel, I, I have a, I mean, I'm a really social person. It's really hard to connect to people. Mm -hmm. Either they're busy or, 
it's like, what am I going to do to meet somebody? I don't, I don't drink alcohol really because I don't mm-hmm. like the taste. So I don't mm-hmm. go to bars usually, you know, mm-hmm. it's like, what am I going to, how am I going to meet someone? How am I going to find someone to play softball on a softball team mm-hmm. or go through the Frisbee in the park or, mm-hmm. you know, get the kids together. It's just like, it's really challenging. And the other thing is that because of the ideology of society, most of our emphases are around attaining status. And so a lot of people spend a lot of time, and this is not a criticism, this is sort of just based on evidence, you know, mm-hmm. about where they're at in terms of where they're living or what they, what they drive or what they're wearing. That's, it's really, and that's, that's stressful too for them. So my point is to say that we don't live in sort of just a carefree society mm-hmm. where people are flourishing in general. Most mm-hmm. people I know are doing well, but still in many ways yeah, feeling either alienated or uncertain disconnected disconnected and so that's what i i mean that's what i that's the term i use a lot is that i just feel really disconnected mm-hmm. and again it has nothing to do with flagstaff per se mm-hmm. i could be living anywhere in the u.s basically and, mm-hmm. and probably feel this except for those places where something's really changing and people mm-hmm. are really proactively taking a different kind of perspective particularly mm-hmm. around responding to climate change mm-hmm. where the emphasis is really around creating community mm-hmm. supporting mutual aid creating something that allows them to feel better in this time of crisis. Mm-hmm. And, and unfortunately that just hasn't materialized here. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and maybe it's just my personality it's just hard to connect to people, but I think that's, that's been the hardest part for me in sort of midlife is just feeling like it's just really hard to connect. Yeah. To people. Yeah. 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 Well, thank you so much for sharing. I actually, as you were talking about that, I was like, wow, this kind of surprises me because this has been, like I feel connected to you even before we started recording, you know, it was just such great, a great moment to have dialogue with you. So I appreciate you taking the time, spending the time here with us, sharing your ideas and connecting at least for this brief moment. Well, yeah. I really appreciate the invitation. And I, I mean, this is the kind of thing I really love. And the, you know, at the end of the presentation I gave the other night, I was, I was saying, you know, this is really what should be happening is that mm-hmm. people should just mm-hmm. really push the boundaries of what they're used to mm-hmm and just try to create connections. And mm-hmm. that's really selfish in some ways because I hope that happens. <laughs> but yeah. I think it's it's something that I just, it's not, again, individuals can't come out of that. It has to yeah. be sort of this collective yeah. effort. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, yeah. Thank you so much, Brian. It's been great to sit here and, and to, yeah, just share and to hear from you. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. All right. Brian just left the chateau. They wow, 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 wow. Yeah, man, I'm feeling pumped. Yeah. I li- like literally my energy is like at 100 right now. Is it? Yeah. Is that 100? super excited. Like the red 100 with the two lines under it? <laughs> just mashing. Yeah. At just 100. mashing on the gas. It's it's exciting, right? Um, I, I can't remember if we touched on this in the actual recording, um, but... You know, earlier this year, I had talked to you about climate strategies mm-hmm. and I, I, I expressed this confusion. I, I said to you, you know, I don't really understand if we just keep mass producing solar panels and batteries, yeah. like where does that stuff go? That yeah. stuff is going to end up in a landfill or end up. Yeah. yeah. And I was really confused by it. And then these alternative ideas we started to come across where really we need to make a systemic change and not um, base uh, our progress as people or as a society on growth, on just perpetual growth, that actually maybe we need to be aware of what's sustainable or not and change Mm -hmm. the system rather than us as individuals buy more electric cars. 
Yeah, just re- kind of keeping the same system and just replacing the contents doesn't seem to do anything. No. Right? Yeah. Like, it, it, again, I know I mentioned this in the interview, but the idea that it's like more cars is the solution to environmental problems just doesn't, it just Line seems off. to just totally miss, right? Yeah. yeah. And so he ends with this idea of the, the, the solutions really come about with um, looking at things differently mm-hmm. and then creating community around that. So looking at th- being willing to step back, look at things differently, mm-hmm. study out ideas, look at evidence and data, yeah. and then talk to other people about it and organize. Yeah. yeah, which again, the word that we would use for me, right, is connection, mm-hmm. like providing or producing this information that we can all look at collectively and then mm-hmm. just organizing together mm-hmm. um, just seems to really tap into that core value that we talk about connection to others. And then also um, it, he talks about it in a way where it's like, let's do this for the good of humanity. And then like also the byproduct is that it helps the planet. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So that we should make decisions that are based in wellness that are a byproduct of the planet. And he didn't say it this way, but it reminded me of when we had met with Colleen Mm. Really, if we're aware that we're related to the planet itself Mm. and the planet to us and that we're related to one another, that awareness, if we take those things into consideration in terms of the decisions we make for how we want to operate as a society or a group of people, that's the thing that we need to do. And so if we, he's saying, you know, if we look at each other, do things that promote wellness for one another. Those are the things that are going to have the byproduct of benefiting the planet. Yeah, exactly. And it really exists on this macro level, right? Like we have to change the systems. It's not up to individual actions to do this. Mm -hmm. One thing that we were kind of chatting about there a little bit, right, is like what about this whole work culture that we have? Mm -hmm. Like this whole just influence with urgency and production and Mm -hmm. perpetual growth. Mm -hmm. And all it does is, I like the word that you had used earlier before recording, is like, turns us into these production zombies, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think that's an idea that I was familiar with uh, way back in the day. From who? <laughs> <laughs> from from reading, my, reading the homie. Some books. Yeah. Karl Marx. Yeah, some production zombies, right? Yeah. And, yeah, like on this, what it does is, and we were saying like it creates the system where we just work more and work more. We take out money to then work more to pay off our debt. Yeah. And we're perpetually chasing this thing. And then what we see with these health indicators is everything just goes to crap. Yeah. Deaths of despair. Deaths of depression. Yeah. Anxiety. Isolation. All these things go up. Isolation. Yeah. Feeling yeah. disconnected. People looking around saying, why am I disconnected? Oh, I should probably consume more. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then, and then it brings into my mind even, again, like just technological tech ethics, right? And I'm thinking about how even like our own attention is being mined and yeah. how we're being mm-hmm. sold all this stuff. And it's like, he, Brian referenced, right? Like, why do things come to our door? And I'm thinking like, man, all this stuff is like in, in this tiny little computer in our hand even, mm-hmm. right? Like, mm-hmm. Yeah, I can order this thing in my hand to have it come to my door. To come to my door and I can do this all by myself. Yeah, I can do yeah. this all by myself without going out and connecting to anything or anything outside of me. Yeah. Anyone or anything outside of me. Yeah. So what do you make of where he concluded there by essentially saying he feels in that same position that it's difficult to connect? Yeah. Um, Yeah. You know, well, I thought what he was saying there was really powerful and and honest and vulnerable, right? mm -hmm. Yeah. I think it'd be really easy in that situation to say, Oh, I connect a flag. And and he mentioned there's these things that are really pertinent about the town, like uh, just the elevation Mm -hmm. and how pretty it is. And, 
how easy it is to be outside and be active. Yeah. And mm-hmm. Those are ways to connect. And then he touched on something he's like, and in many ways, because of the way society is organized, I actually feel really disconnected. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, there's a problem with society here, right? Mm-hmm. Like this is a system thing. Mm-hmm. It, and you mentioned Colleen earlier. I was thinking like, this to me does have to do with a way of life. Mm-hmm. It reminds me of Colleen and Devana a little bit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, we, you know, we concluded, I think we should let people know, we concluded with Brian saying, let's keep in touch and see if we can organize something that's based in wellness that may have that byproduct of benefiting our natural world. Yeah. Because uh, we're all connected. So yeah. um, hoping to keep in touch. So enthused at that 100. At that 100. Yeah. yeah. I, I feel like a little bit mind blown right now. Like <laughs> just excited. Yeah. Just taking it all in. Yeah. Yeah. Why don't you take us out by shouting us out? No doubt. You can always find us on the interwebs at beyondflag.com. Beyond spelled. <laughs> Flag spelled. Oh, right. G. <laughs> B-E-E-Y-A-W-N-D. Oh, F-L-A-G-G. There we go with the phonetics. Dot K-A-W-M. Uh, beyondflag.com. You can also find us on Instagram and, uh, and the Twitter feed at beyond underscore flag. Yeah. Yeah. Take and care. Choose to go there. <laughs> yeah. Take care. Love you.